Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for taking. I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Chapter 7 and 8 is where we will find ourselves this morning. Isaiah 7 and 8. And as always, I invite you to find the sermon notes in your bulletin because I know that that will be a help to you as well. Greetings to you in the other room. Glad you're out there and uh, welcome you as part of our worshiping community. Um, I want to think with you along the same line of the video you just watched. Uh, Recently, I read this book. It's called When Faith is Forbidden. It's from Voice of the Martyrs. The writer, Todd Nettleton, is uh, a radio host for that organization and has the privilege of traveling around the world often to, to meet believers who have suffered because they are believers. This book is intended to be like a 40-day read, a little section for 40 days. Now, I was reading it on an airplane, so I did a little more than the, the, the one-day uh, reading. But I want to read just a part of this from day 16. And again, the video and this little testimonial will lead us to the text, and I know you'll see why and how. So on day 16, Todd talks about uh, a meeting with a young lady by the name of Sister Tong. And I'm going to read part and tell part, but you'll you'll figure out what's going on here very quickly. Uh, So Todd says, after our time in Vietnam, we went to this other country where we met Sister Tong. She had been released from prison a few weeks before our arrival. I was to interview her and then write a story about her witness and her time in prison. Sister Tong had hosted an unregistered church meeting in her home. Any gathering of Christians outside the government system is considered illegal. So Sister Tong, who hosted such a gathering in her house, was arrested and sent to prison for six months in an effort to re-educate her. Sister Tong met us in a location where we could have some privacy. It would not have helped her if she were caught meeting with foreigners. So we greeted each other, exchanged pleasantries and small talk through the translator. I got out my recorder to begin the interview. Question number one. So tell me about the prison. I was thinking we'd set the stage for the, her story by diving right into her suffering. I expected her to tell colorful details about how difficult prison life was. The bed was so, so hard, the food was so bad, the rats were so big. I waited expectantly as the translator turned my question from English into her native tongue. The recorder running, my pen is ready. Sister Tong heard my question from the translator. Her face lit up with what I can only call a heavenly smile. She said something briefly to the translator, and he turned to me and said, Oh, yes, that was a wonderful time. I turned to the translator. I was confused. I'd asked about prison, and Sister Tong smiled and said it was wonderful. The translator must not have understood my question. Something had misconnected, hadn't it? Uh, in my understanding, there could be no way anyone would say prison was wonderful. Right? The translator assured me he'd answered or translated my question correctly, and her answer, oh, yes. He said that was a wonderful time. I had more questions for Sister Tong now. How could prison be wonderful? What was it about the experience that would bring such a smile to her face? She was only too happy to answer. Prison was wonderful because, because God was there. 
with her. Sister Tong shared how close and how special her relationship with Christ had been in prison. It was like he paid special attention to her during that time. Her heart warmed daily by a sense of his presence. She'd felt so close to the creator of the universe in prison that it was hard to think of that time as anything other than wonderful. And it wasn't just Christ's presence. He also allowed Sister Tong to have an amazing ministry in prison. She had had the opportunity to lead several cellmates to faith in Christ. What could be more wonderful than seeing someone snatched from the kingdom of hell and brought into the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ? Oh, yes. It was a wonderful time. Day 16, when faith is forbidden, uh, a good book for you to read. So what would make prison a wonderful place? What would make a time of crisis and difficulty, agony, loss? What would make it wonderful? Well, perhaps if in it we had a, a new and fresh sense of the presence of God. Now, in our text today, we meet Emmanuel. The name, of course, given to Jesus in Matthew 1, and we'll visit that text as well. But we meet the first Emmanuel, who is a, a, a sign pointing to Jesus. So Emmanuel shows up in chapter 7. Interestingly, this first Emmanuel and the greater Emmanuel, Jesus, are, are, are given to their people in a time of national crisis, a time of fear and difficulty. And both Emmanuels, the first and then the greater, the greater Emmanuel, Jesus, were intended to be a sign of God's presence. Indeed, God with us. I'd like to pray that God will help us uh, I, I am very aware that for many of us, um, life brings extra challenge, even these days, I know. And often a, an awareness of the presence of God is, is really more important than just God taking that problem away. So I want us to think about this deeply today. I'd love to have you pray with me. Let's ask God's help for our time in his word. Our Father, in these brief moments that we have together, we have so much to look at here in the book of Isaiah. Would you help us here to focus in on the most important parts for our time and for this, this audience today? Uh, Father, as we come, active worshipers, hearing your word and, and pointing our hearts to Christ, would you, would you help us to hear and to love what we hear and to love Christ more because of it? And then going from this place to obey in even greater measure and with greater joy. So help us now in the preaching of your word. That is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Your sermon notes, of course, have a couple elements of review. I'll let you take a look at those. And the little part here called today's text. If you would look at that with me for just a moment... You'll see just a bit of textual information. We've covered the first six chapters and now come to another unit. Really, chapters 7 through 12 are a, a unit similar in thought. You'll see that as we head into our text next week, chapter 9, kind of a continuing uh, part of this saga that's presented here and all the way through chapter 12. And we're going to meet, uh, it really in brief measure, a king, King Ahaz, who was referenced for us in chapter 1, verse 1, one of several kings under whose uh, leadership 
Uh, Isaiah is a prophet of God. Now, this is the short version of Ahaz. And if you want to just make a, make a note to self, if you want the, more, the, the full color version of King Ahaz, who was not a good guy, by the way, he is not a follower of the God of the Bible. You can find this in 2 Kings chapter 16 or 2 Chronicles 28. If you want to look up those other texts, you'll find out who we're dealing with here. And I, I think to do so magnifies the mercy of God in showing kindness even to a guy like this. And he was indeed a bad guy. But I, I say as we prepare to read this por- first portion of the text, um, as we shake our head at Ahaz, who in this text does not trust God, we shake our head at him and at the same time should ask ourselves, in my times of crisis, how do I trust him? In what sense is that my first reaction? So we want to come to God's word. I want to read uh, chapter 7 and uh, a couple of comments along the way. I'll read down through verse 6, a couple of comments into chapter 9, or, or sorry, to verse 9 of chapter 7. And I, I note as I begin, you see it as you read the time marker that's here. Chapter 1, verse 1, uh, has a time marker in the days of. In chapter 6, verse 1, in the year that... King Uzziah died, and here then, in the days of Ahaz. So Isaiah is telling us kind of when these things are taking place. All right, so look with me then uh, to God's word. In the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Joshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So there's a very specific GPS. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the, the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it, says the Lord God. And then there's a little poetic Uh, section here about how it's not going to work out that way. At the end of verse 9, he says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Okay, we'll stop reading for a moment. We'll come back to the text in a minute. Um, I I just want to give you kind of a, 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 a nutshell what's going on, okay? This historical situation is, is going to show up again in Isaiah, so you should get it now as we lay the groundwork. You remember, perhaps, that at this time, the nation of Israel has been divided in half. Twelve, twelve groups, or twelve tribes, and there was like a civil war. We've talked about this in the past. 931 B.C., they kind of split. So the ten groups in the north, also called Ephraim here in this text, or Israel, Sometimes those names are all referring to the group up north. And then in the south, you have two groups, often called Judah. That's where Jerusalem was. 
but they're kind of in the south. So these two groups, now what's happening in this text is we're talking to the king of the south, Ahaz, and the group up north has partnered with Syria, and they're, they're sounding like they're going to come attack this guy, the people in the south. So your brother's up north. They're, they're getting ready to come, and they got their buddies, the Syrians, and they're coming for us. This is not a good situation. So <clears throat> as you see at the end of verse 2, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They are scared to death. That's an understandable reaction. If you're a king, you know what your army strength is. Most of us have never been in his shoes, though. Most of us know very little about being afraid of being attacked by an army. So what makes you afraid? What makes you afraid? What makes your heart shake as the trees of the forest shake before the wind? I know some of the answers. Fear of the future. Fear of illness, sickness, death. Fear that we'll run out of money. Fear that we'll run out of money in retirement. Fear of terrible things happening to people we love. Right? Fear of something with our kids. Fear of something never being reconciled. Fear of a relationship that'll break or that's broken and fearful that it won't be resolved. Fearful of bad people. Um, we live in a culture of fear. Uh, interesting, um, Dr. Michael Reeves in his book, Rejoice and Tremble, uh, which is pushing us toward the fear of God, as we'll see in chapter 8, a good fear. He, he introduces the book with talking about today's culture of fear. He says, from Twitter to television... We fret about global terrorism, extreme weather, okay, pandemics, political turmoil. And then he, you could go on, a culture of fear. He's writing from the UK, of course, not from our backyard, but it would be the same across this side of the water. A culture of fear. Well, what's the first thing you do when the phone rings at 4 o'clock in the morning? It's never good, is it? We hope it's a wrong number. We hope it's a telemarketer, even though that would be irritating. (laughs) Far worse would be that it would be news of someone who's injured or has died. We we know about phone calls. You do too. Well, sometimes life changes in a moment. I have there in front of you, and we fear. That's our first reaction. It was for them. It was for them. Now, very graciously, this text is, is covered with the graciousness of God, which, by the way, Even as we think of God's graciousness here and the sign of Emmanuel, God with us, please don't take this for granted. Because the Christian God, the God of the Bible, is a God who is gracious and merciful. Oh yes, we saw in chapter 6, splendidly holy, strikingly holy, fearfully holy. Yes, I got that part. But the mercy of this amazing God is not to be overlooked as well. I remember, I remember hearing uh, from the Palais over in India, a uh, time that I was with them, they were talking about um, the gods of Hinduism. 350 million, all of whom hate you and want to ruin your life, and your job is to appease them, and you live in fear. 
and along comes, along comes the God of the Bible, who is, who is, yes, to be feared, but not like that. Reverenced, respected, honored, but a God who is merciful and gracious, who is with us and near us. This is something new, even in world religions. Now, this God, this merciful God, sends Isaiah, you imagine this, to go meet with, with Ahaz and speak to him on behalf of God. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, don't let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. That's what he's calling these two enemy armies, this fierce anger. Don't be afraid of them. Wow, they're coming for you. Well, they say they are, but don't be afraid. Be firm in faith. The last part of verse, of verse 9. Wow. Well, life changes. God speaks. Don't be afraid. Don't overreact. A call to trust. My second section, then looking at verses 10 through 25. Now, I want you to watch what happens. I'm going to read and stop and read and stop, but, but work with me through the text. Again, the Lord spoke to, to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, or the grave, the place of the dead, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, isn't that a fine little reply? This is a pious-sounding phrase from someone who really does not fear God. Now, you read his story. He's not a good guy. So God says, ask a sign for me. I want to show you. Here's what's going on. God says, I want to show you that I am trustworthy. What would you like me to do? Isn't that above and beyond? I mean, that's amazing. There are times you've asked that or wished you kind of could. God, could you just show me a sign that it's not going over the cliff? Just a little something, you know, I don't know what that would be. Suitcase of money, I've got problems with money. I don't know what it would be. But just a little sign that you're really there. And Ahaz declines. I wouldn't want to test God. Oh, I'll bet. And so God says, well then, verse 13, Here then, O house of David, listen up, house of David, that's Judah, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? In other words, you're you're wearing out all the people around you, and I'm tired of you too. Isn't that nice? (laughs) Therefore, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. You don't want to ask for a sign? How, How about I give you one? Here you go. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land, <coughs> the land whose two kings you fear will be deserted. Excuse me a moment. <coughs> you see there in verse 17 and 18, the, the designation of the age of this boy before he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. Uh, It is from verses like this that people think about what's often called in our day the age of accountability. You perhaps have heard of that. At what age does a child answer for himself or herself before God? It's from verses like this that are sprinkled throughout the whole Bible where you see God differentiating between a young child and one who knows. They get it. Okay? But the point of this in in his context is say, I'm going to send a son. He's going to call him Emmanuel, a sign of my presence. 
And before he's that old, old enough to know, to know better, we say, you're old enough to know better, then the, 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 the two armies coming against you will be broken and you're going to have a bigger problem. Well, uh, let me just give you a clue as to the bigger problem. I don't think we've talked about this yet. Here's what's going to happen. Ahaz, because he doesn't want to trust God, and these two armies look like they're coming for him, he reaches out in another direction and says, I think I could get help over here. He gets, not Syria, the Assyrians. He says, maybe those guys will help me. So he starts cozying up to the Assyrians. This is a very bad idea. And what you're going to see scattered through the text, you're going to see God saying to his people, those Assyrians you're trying to be friends with, Oh my goodness, in about 35 years, they're going to come knocking on your door and they're going to eat you for lunch. That's what's going to happen here. If I could use a, uh, uh, a little illustration from the farm, not that I was raised on the farm or lived on a farm, but I have visited a farm. Uh, but you've heard the proverbial stories of hen houses and foxes. Okay, so picture with me a hen house and there's a neighbor cat who's attacking, the, trying to get into the hen house. So the hens are really disturbed by this, looking around and saying, we got a problem. It's this big old tomcat trying to get in here. Let's get a friend to help us. So the chicken looks around and sees a fox wandering by and says, oh, Mr. Fox, we're scared of the cat. Would you come over here and scare away the cat? And the fox says, oh, for goodness sakes, I'd love to help. Comes into the house, shuts the door, scares away the cat. You're the chicken. You're the chickens. See, that's, that's the best story I can tell you about what's going on in Isaiah 7 and 8. If you just get that, you get the text. You're the chickens. You're making friends with the wrong people. In a minute, he's coming for you. And you think that the, that the cat is the problem. The cat isn't your problem. I'll take care of the cat. But you got a bigger problem because you're asking the, the fox to come into the hen house. That makes sense? Okay, now, man... I know, that's kind of an interesting way to think about it, but it's the best I could do uh, for Isaiah 7. Now, I want, to, I want to talk about this sign of Emmanuel, okay? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. How interesting. Now, we're going to look over uh, just a moment here. You might want to flip over to Matthew 1, because I want to go there in just a moment. But I, I, just a couple of kind of like a crash course in, um, in biblical prophecy. We, caught, we commonly talk about this. There have been a number of occasions recently for us to think about biblical prophecy because what's taking place in Isaiah 7 seemed less remarkable at the time. They were not aware at the moment that they were receiving a prophecy with far-reaching implications 700 years later. They were not aware of that, I don't believe. The Lord was going to give a sign for this particular moment of national fear, and this sign was going to be a child, a son. And when it says the virgin shall conceive, the, the Hebrew term would, could also be translated young lady. And there have been those in the whole discussion of theology down through the ages who have said it doesn't really say virgin birth here. It says a young lady, a young woman. Uh, so, so how can you guys come along and say Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. This especially was discussed heavily, oh, I don't know, about 100 years ago, if you follow the flow of theology, in what we often look back on as the, the fundamentalist, modernist controversy, where a lot of the cardinal issues of, of faith, like the virgin birth, were called into question. Like, seriously, people, that's not the way it works. Okay? 
Well, people then often said the word here doesn't necessarily mean a virgin. It can mean a young lady. And I actually, uh, I would not try to pretend that the child born in Isaiah 7 is born of a virgin. I don't think he was. But in Matthew 1, as you turn there, let's talk about Jesus. Okay? Because here, in Matthew's gospel, the writer goes way out of the way to talk about the virginity of, G- of Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's inescapable in the text. So it's building on Isaiah 7 in greater fulfillment, just like you have David and the greater son of David, Jesus. So you have Emmanuel, the first one, and the greater Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us. And the word that's used for virgin in the Old Testament takes on more technical definition in Matthew 1. Look with me, please, and I want to call out some of those elements as we read Matthew 1, where Isaiah 7 is referenced. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. I'm in Matthew 1, 18. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Yes, betrothal, engagement, we're familiar with our system, but hasten to remind us that at this time, betrothal was very similar to marriage. It was a legally binding contract. It would require something like a divorce to break it. During that time period of betrothal, you would still be called husband and wife, but the marriage would not be consummated. Make sense? Okay, very clear in this text. So Mary has been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Remember, Mary had told Joseph this. We read this in the Gospel of Luke. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. You understand. We talk about this often at Christmas. Joseph is a little bothered. He's betrothed to this young lady who now says that she's with child, she's pregnant, and there was an angel. And Joseph is busy thinking, okay, hold on, I love this girl, but an angel. Wow. Uh, I know where I've been and I know what I haven't done. And this just doesn't look good. And so we read, Joseph is a just man. He's, he, he's ready to just let it go and let her go and not shame her. But, of course, verse 20, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He's validating what Mary had already told Joseph. And here's what the angel says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Of course, the name Jesus means that. Jesus, Joshua, Isaiah, all come from the same root. God saves. God saves. So in order, of course, Joshua, and then Isaiah, and then Jesus, all connected in in the meaning of the words. Now, again, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, and we know that to be Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This text could not be more explicit that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. In a sense, Emmanuel number two, Jesus, amplifying what took place in Isaiah 7. Now, 
I want to remind you a couple of little phrases we've used as we've thought about biblical prophecy. There are prophecies in the Old Testament that we've called this is that, where there's a one-to-one correspondence, where we're told something very specifically, he's going to ride into town on a donkey, and Jesus rides into town on a donkey. That is the same thing. This is that. Then there's also this kind of situation where this is like that. Okay? This is like that. So the the, the story of the virgin being with child in Matthew 1 is like what happened back then in Isaiah 7, but clearly some differences. I hope that that makes sense to you because we underscore a major uh, doctrine of faith, the virgin birth of Christ, so important because God was being wed with humanity. Okay? Not a human father. That's the core of that doctrine and its foundation here in Isaiah 7. Okay, if you look back at your notes here in in Isaiah 7, we'll come back to Matthew uh, briefly in just a little bit here. You see my point, and the fourth bullet point under that setting, or or the heading on page number two, God uses that initial prophecy to tell King Ahaz that within a few short years, before that child grows up very much, the power of those two nations that are coming against him in attack, that they will be broken. And the nation that Ahaz is planning to seek as a friend will soon be a foe. That's the essence of chapter 7. Now, move quickly into chapter 8. We'll pick up just a few verses here. It continues the story with another sign, and this is my third heading. Uh, Fear God more than your problems. Fear God more than your problems. So chapter 8, then verse 1, the Lord said to me, that is to Isaiah, take a really large tablet, okay, you'll know why in a minute, and write on it in common characters, belonging to Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Well, there you go. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest, Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to me, call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Wow. Now, a couple of key things. Meher Shalal Hashbaz. That's this kid's name. Can you imagine having this discussion in the hospital? Your wife says, oh, I was thinking of a good Bible name like Joseph or David. And you go, yeah, I was kind of thinking of Meher Shalal Hashbaz. You tell your parents. This is, I mean, this is pretty amazing. It's, by the way, small detail. If you ever play Bible trivia, not that anything in the Bible is trivial, this is the longest name in the Bible. So you can win at least one in Bible trivia. If you draw the question, what's the longest name in the Bible? You'll go, oh, for goodness sakes, I was there that day in Sunday school. Isaiah 8, verse 1, it's Meher Shalal Hashbaz, which is a, a scary name. Well, it is because it means something. As you see on that first bullet point under that heading, the child's name means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil, and that's what the Assyrians are going to do when they come for you. You're going to come so fast, you're not even going to have time to blink twice, and they're going to take all your stuff and burn your place down. Okay? How about that? Oh, good. It's Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Man, every time you call that kid's name, you'll be remembering a promise from God that the bad guys are going to come and eat you alive. Man, that's cheerful. But God was, God was being gracious to tell him what was coming. Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Man. Now, think about this. Bullet point number two, God's people have sought peace and protection from another source that is not from him. And God warns them 
that their chosen path will bring unintended consequences, almost sweeping them away. I'm going to read just a couple more verses, verse, starting in verse 5. Watch the analogy of a flood here, okay? The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently, or your text might say the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. Think a calm uh, brook type of thing. They've refused this and instead rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outstretched wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. And the term is referenced again at the end of verse 7, for God is with us. Their counsel will not stand. God is with us. And then I wanted to touch again on verses 13 and 14, if I may. Here's, here's the correct place for our fear to be directed. Okay? But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become, what is it? A sanctuary safe place. See? Fear him instead. And a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. Oh my goodness, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Uh, Peter would say uh, centuries later, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both houses of Israel, trap and a snare. But he says, rather than fearing these enemies, and their saber rattling, fear God more than you fear your problem. Fear God more than, more than them. Now, I want to think with you about just a couple of things. This story is going to continue. These are two of the kids whose names are mentioned. There'll be another one next week. Uh, chapter 8, verse 18. Behold, I and the children the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel. Well, indeed. So, Emmanuel, Meher Shalah, Hashbaz, and then we'll look at, uh, into chapter 9 next week. But God is, God is speaking to people in their fear. Okay? You, you think about the national situation, we've covered it. But, but the, the, the fact that God would address his people in their fears, in mercy, should be striking to you. God addressing even a wicked king in his fear. God coming. God being Emmanuel. God with us. Now, in this case, God, through Isaiah, gives King Ahaz kind of a hint of what the future holds. The only part we know about what the future holds is right here, isn't it? But it is intended to be enough for God's people to know in their seasons of difficulty and fear, in ours, that God is, is with us. He is with us. He is not against us. He does not give Ahaz what he deserves. In mercy, he gives him a word from a prophet and a look into the future. He's merciful, even here. And my friend, I, I don't know all of the things that we've walked in here carrying. No, some. I know that as we walk in carrying all of these things, sometimes people say, leave your, leave your issues from the week at the door. Oh, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Bring them all in here, right into the presence of God, and lay them out before him. 
the God who is near, the God who is near. Sometimes life changes in a moment and we fear. Yes, indeed we do. God wants us to trust him deeply. God wants us. He meets us in our place of doubt. That's what he did for Ahaz. And he calls us to fear him more than our problems. Would you look with me at that responding to God's word section for just a moment? This text should be a reminder of a whole number of things, but these in particular, God oversees the movement of the nations, kings, kingdoms rising and falling in his command. Why do I fear? Why do I fear? Why do I fear? When problems and dangers arise, to whom do I turn? I wonder that for you and for me. What is your, what is your reflex? Why is it that we often say, I've done everything I can. All I can do now is pray. Why do we say that? Why isn't the first thing we do is to come to the Lord? Maybe some of us today have things we're carrying, things we're facing, things that are really a problem. We don't know, where do I get counsel on this? I hope before you go anywhere else, you go straight to God and say, God, would you help here? I really don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to get out of this. I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what the future is going to hold. Would you tell him first, really, and seek his face about your problem? Don't run to other places first. Go to him first. He might direct you to get counsel and help others in other places. I know God's people are to come alongside one another. Step number one, always to him. The first Emmanuel in Isaiah 7, born in a time of national, national crisis, the greater Emmanuel, Jesus, came to our world, as we'll sing in a few weeks, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Charles Wesley and toning sacrifice. Well, I want to pray that God will help us to believe that he is Emmanuel, God with us. Then we're going to remember Christ very briefly in communion and just allow that to soak in. I'm going to comment during that time from Matthew chapter 1, so you could have that open in front of you. It'll just be a moment. I'd like to pray for us now, though as we make that transition. Father, how we thank you that in this unique time in history as described in the text that you were Emmanuel, God with us to the people of God there in Judah, even to Ahaz, the wicked king. And you sent that little baby as a sign back then and you sent the greater Emmanuel, the one who would be God in the flesh for us. How we thank you for not overlooking us in our place of need. Even as you did not just say, Ahaz, you're a bad guy, off with you. So you could look at us and say the same thing. Thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you for sending Jesus. I pray that in these moments as we remember Christ, that you would just knit that truth to our hearts and cause us to believe it even more than we do. In Jesus' name, amen. As always, if you know Christ as your Savior, we invite you to share with us in receiving communion. Um, The way we serve communion these days, as you know, we have three communion stations rather than passing trays, as has been our pattern through the years. Uh, But we invite those who would like to partake in communion to come, uh, these two outer sections, to come up the outer aisle, to use those two stations on the far side. Here in the middle, if you'd make your way down this middle aisle, and you'll find elements in both places. And then this aisle and this aisle here are the return shoots. Okay? Now, feel free to serve someone near you or someone who's mobility impaired around you. You can ask if you could serve them. That would be fine. 
And um, you'll need to take both cups because the little bread is in the bottom cup and the juice is on top. So take both. Okay? I invite you to come. I'll comment briefly and then we'll remember Christ together. But come, please. running out of communion elements does not mean that Christ has run out of mercy and grace. You read the gospel accounts, we marvel at the coming of God in human flesh. The miracle that Jesus would be born without a human father, fully God, fully man. And in that humanity, that human flesh, so described so in such detail, maybe even more than Matthew's gospel over in John's gospel, what an amazing thing God did for our redemption. This little cracker that's with the juice, it tells a story. It tells a story of, of what Jesus did when he died on the cross, lived a perfect life, and in that human body so wedded with deity, went to the cross and suffered in our place. 
That little cracker reminds us of his body broken for us. We remember him together today. As we read in Matthew 1, a text I hope you never tire of hearing. The words of the angel to Joseph, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, where he will save his people from their sins. He doesn't say he will save his people from troubles or suffering or discouragements or depression or breaking things or being lonely. He doesn't say that. He doesn't promise you life is Disneyland. It says he will save his people from their sins, which is your biggest problem. That's it. That's your biggest problem. This cup of juice reminds us of the, the blood of Jesus poured out on the cross that we could be forgiven. He died in our place. Let's remember him. I would invite you to stand with me as we close our service with a prayer of thanksgiving. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you that you love us as you do. Thank you that you are that holy God so depicted in Isaiah 6. And it is not a violation of your holiness to be merciful at the same time. Thank you for your mercy extended to Ahaz and your people so long ago and yours extended to us most clearly in Jesus, our Savior, Redeemer, and Friend. Father, as we head out into this week, some of us are already carrying areas of concern and difficulty, things we live with, and there may be more this week. But Father, keep us from that place of fear, but rather let us live with a greater fear of you and great joy because you are Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you for being that to us. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.